up sports fans what's up gamers welcome to the fifth of what i hope will be six episodes of our fifa saga and more importantly welcome to the two line offside podcast if today's your first time joining us then what's up we're so glad you found us but before you go any further though you should probably stop right now and go back and listen to the first four episodes about FIFA of this podcast. Parts of this podcast won't make sense unless you've heard at least episode four of the last of the FIFA series. So go ahead. We'll wait right here. And for the rest of you, welcome back to the Two Line Offside podcast, everyone. The podcast where it doesn't matter if you're onside or offside, just as long as you're inside the lines. How's it hanging, sports fans? This is the part of the podcast where I remind you, once again, that this podcast is likely to contain some less than perfect words. This time, I'd like to personally apologize to my Aunt Sheila for that. There is no particular reason why I want to apologize to my Aunt Sheila, I just know that she listens to this podcast. Love you, Aunt Sheila. That being said, I'm going to beep all the Odyssey audio, so you and your kids should be a-okay, as long as you're okay for them to learn about organized crime, corrupt governments, and a teeny bit of organized religion this time, I guess? But... Just like every episode, I'm going to be censoring the swears, but not with this sound, but with two different sounds that will somehow relate or be related to the episode that we're in. If you want to hear how the sounds from the last episode are related, then you'll find that in the intermission section of the podcast, which I'm going to mark by two whistle sounds like this. Okie dokie, with all that sorted it's time for us to go so let's go offside <laughs> just kidding there's actually one more thing before we get started it's time for the episode recap except this time i'm gonna be really lazy and just give you a clip with time and experience Hawa built the tournament into a force that after many years was finally making money rather than hemorrhaging it. As I stated earlier, as time went on, organizing and selling advertising for La Coupa made Jota Hallway a very wealthy man. Alright, now that you're back from that, before we jump 100% into the really juicy parts of this episode, as it relates to the overall story of the falling of FIFA, I thought it might be a good idea for us to take a brief look at a summary of both of the two main characters of today's story. And both the cultural and sports culture, or football culture, background from which they come. Mohammed bin Halman, who's today's main character, he became the president of the Asian Football Confederation, the AFC, in 2002. The AFC is not to be confused with KFC, KFC is a chicken restaurant, those are different things. However, the Asian Football Confederation is another one of those blocks of football confederations that fall under the web of FIFA. This is just like CONCACAF, not CAFPAL like Abby from NCIS, or Common Bowl from the last episode. It's a collection of member nations within FIFA which often vote together in elections, and or host regional tournaments throughout the year. The AFC itself contains 47 member nations, which are largely, but not all, in Asia, and can qualify to compete in the World Cup. These nations include places such as Japan, Malaysia, Laos, Saudi Arabia, China, the Philippines, Afghanistan, and most notably for our most recent World Cup in 2022, the small Middle Eastern nation of Qatar. That brings me to the second character in today's story, which actually isn't a person, but rather a country. And so you're saying, but Mel, what is Qatar all about? Why did Qatar get the World Cup bid? And what on earth is Qatar like outside of football? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I had these three questions too. But this is the part of the podcast where I 100% admit to you guys that I am definitely not a geography or political science major, and that although I hope I did an okay job in the research, I'm throwing in this warning here because I want you to know that as a Westerner, it's entirely possible that I got some of the stuff wrong or don't understand some of the nuance required. I did think it was important, though, that before we jump into the controversy, which is about to overtake the man we're here to talk about, we should at least have a cursory understanding of what Qatar is like as a nation before it was the center of the football world. Now, contrary to what normal social convention would dictate, I'm going to start talking about Qatar as it relates to two of the things which most people would say that we should never talk about. Religion and politics. Why on earth would I be such a buzzkill inside a sports podcast to talk about something that is as much of a snorefest as government and religion? Like a writer trying to insert a bunch of Senate discussions inside a force user lightsaber battle? That was a slickly placed reference to my favorite Star Wars prequel for the lesser informed. And, spoiler alert, in the case of both Star Wars and FIFA, nothing distracts from questionably human rights abuses and corrupt governments better than sprinkling in a little bit of physical activity. (coughs) Sports washing. Now, I did quite a bit of research to try to understand how some of this works, and some of it can be conflicting or confusing, but the best explanation that I found, and the one I'm going to base mine off, is an explanation that came from the fine folks, once again, at worldatlas.com. I'll leave their links in the show notes. So, from official standpoint, the small nation of Qatar which is southeast of Saudi Arabia and southwest of the United Arab Emirates. I'm extremely (laughs) proud of myself that I figured out where both of those countries were on a map. Not just because I'm not good at geography, but because I literally can't do directions. Anyways, it's southeast of Saudi Arabia and southwest of the United Arab Emirates. It's considered a constitutional monarchy as of the passing of its constitution in 2004. A constitutional monarchy in Qatar essentially means that the government is consisted of three branches. The Amar, who ultimately holds absolute power, the executive branch, and the constitutive assembly. The executive branch serves as a type of advisory council to the Amar, which consists of both the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's deputy and cabinet ministers. All of these people function to advise the Amar and are selected and can be dismissed by the Amar at any time. Regardless as to what the executive branch might suggest, it's important to note here that ultimately, again, the Amar of Qatar, which I did not intend to rhyme, has the absolute power to make any government decisions that he wishes, and can fire anyone in the executive branch that he doesn't like. The Constitutive Assembly is said to hold the legislative power in Qatar, and it consists of 30 members who are elected on four-year terms, and 15 more members who are handpicked by the Qatar of Amar himself, but who are treated to unlimited terms. According to the aforementioned constitution, which Qatar passed in 2004, the Constitutive Assembly has three major roles. Approving the national budget, passing legislation proposed by the executive branch, and monitoring the activity of cabinet members. In order for a law to pass, it must have two-thirds of a majority vote. The reason as to why there's so much debate as to what type of government Qatar is specifically relates back to whether it's simply an absolute monarchy or, as postulated here, a constitutional monarchy. To put this into contextual understanding, understandable terms for my mostly Western listeners, a large number of countries which currently consider themselves a member of the United Kingdom, including 
Commonwealth countries are also constitutional monarchies. In the case of modern times, this simply means that for many nations, the laws are passed through the input from their local government, but approved on a largely ceremonial basis by a king or queen of England. This differs from the way that Qatar functions in two major ways. The first being that although those found within the Constitutive Assembly can be elected, many of them are not, and even among the executive branch, which is appointed by the Amar, no law is able to pass in Qatar unless it is if it is ultimately vetoed by the Amar himself. This ties neatly into the role of religion in this whole thing, when one learns that, at least to some extent, the ultimate job of the Amar of Qatar again, I did not try to rhyme that, is to uphold and to probably in some cases interpret Sharia law, and how it should be applied in Qatar. What's up gamers? What's up sports fans? Promise I won't make a habit of interrupting episodes like this, but I feel like it'd be pretty insensitive and uncool of me to not give you at least a little bit of a warning as to what the next part of the podcast is going to be about. For the next session, I'm going to do the very best I can to give you a beginner's level crash course on what Sharia law might mean in this context, and how it relates to Qatar, and then by extension, to the affected 2020 World Cup and its bid. Full disclosure, I'm doing this as a Western-educated white woman who's definitely not a religious scholar by any measure. I simply did as much research as I could about what Sharia law means. But, just like any religious or cultural idea, however, Sharia law is super complicated and could be and is most definitely applied and practiced by different nations and different individuals all over the world. I'm going to do my very best to deliver this in a way that would make my sociology professor proud. That is to say, I'm going to aim to not give you any opinion from me. So, in its broadest sense, Sharia law is explained by the fine folks of Encyclopedia Britannica as being the following, quote, Sharia law is the religious law of Islam derived from the teaching of Quran and of Muhammad. It is not a list of rules, but a set of principles that regulate the spiritual, mental, and physical behavior of Muslims in all aspects of their lives, end quote. It might be easy for someone who is not of the Muslim faith or from the West, or for someone who's just not taken the time to at least try to understand that at least some of the Muslims who practice it, myself included, to fall victim to the idea that Sharia law simply involves jihadist acts of violence against non-Muslims and a desire to suppress the human rights of, in often cases, women all over the world. However, one of the most important things that this podcaster learned while trying to understand Sharia law is that, at its core, that the rules which govern Sharia law come from four main sources. The Quran, Sunnah, which means the life of Muhammad, the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad, the Ijma, the consensus of major scholars, and the Kaisas, the measurement in comparison. Hopefully I said those okay. My Arabic is non-existent. I'm really sorry if I messed that up. The most important thing, in my opinion, when it comes to understanding this list, are the last two things that I listed, which are determined by the consensus of major scholars, and the things that are deci decided by measuring them against previous decisions. It's these two things which are most important to remember in order to be able to understand Sharia law in terms of how it's interpreted and practiced in various parts of the world and even amongst individuals. That is to say, a group of scholars or powerful leaders in one country or denomination may decide that women should be able to drive, and that's within Sharia law, for instance, or they may determine that a woman shouldn't have the right to drive, and that's within Sharia law. Just as in various sects of Christianity, one can have different ideas as to who should have things like 
leadership roles within the church, who should take communion, and who should be allowed to marry. Similar differences also exist among those who practice Islam and adhere to Sharia law. The difference which does not exist, and is in fact the reason why it is important for this particular podcast, comes down to the fact that Sharia law is often used in a way that is practiced in the service of aiding actual civil rights laws and violations which exist in some Muslim-majority countries such as Qatar, the home of the 2020 FIFA World Cup, and Asian Football Association, or AFC, not to be confused with KFC President, Mohammed bin Halman. These laws are not just important because they affect, at least potentially, the decisions of Mohammed bin Halman, but also because they affect both legally and politically what FIFA is allowed to do with respect to the World Cup. Some examples of how the World Cup was affected by the application of Sharia law in Qatar includes things like the sale of beer and alcohol, as was noted by CNN's Sammy Monagochi, hopefully I pronounced that right, and Chris Endergill, just two days before the kickoff of the World Cup, both Qatar and FIFA announced that the host nation, which highly regulates the sale of alcohol within the nation due to its conservative adherence to Muslim ideology normally, had rescinded its prior offer to permit the sale of alcohol three hours before a match and one hour after kickoff, but not during matches. Why is this such a big deal? Well, Budweiser, which is owned by brewing company Anheuser-Busch, is a major sponsor of the FIFA World Cup. So big, in fact, that they spent approximately $75 million to sponsor the event, according to the New York Times. Though alcohol sales were permitted in areas surrounding the event, it was still a major cultural shift for an event which is sponsored by a beer company caused by the very conservative Sharia laws in Qatar. On that same vein, though, Qatari officials made it clear that those visiting for the purpose of the World Cup would not be forced to wear hijab, as is custom and mandatory for women living within the nation. They were requested, along with their mayor counterparts, to adhere to a fairly modest dress code, which covers from shoulder to knees, this, again, being within the legal code of Qatar, which is covered by the Sharia law of the Muslim culture of the area. One of the final major questions related to the application of Islamic law, which was of major concern, was the presence of members of the LGBTQ community and their safety attending the event, particularly when one considers that according to an article by The Guardian, which cites Human Rights Watch, being convicted in Qatar of homosexuality could result in between three to seven years in prison. The consequences being even steeper for those who are residents of the nation, who would not only face a criminal court, but also a Sharia court, for which a conviction of capital punishment or death is possible. Though some officials from both Qatar and FIFA itself had stated that any LGBTQ fans would be safe in Qatar, they were also asked to respect that displays of protest for LGBTQ rights in Qatar are both against civil and Sharia laws, and so such, quote, displays are unacceptable. This became a particularly large point of contention when FIFA announced just hours before a match involving England, which was one of seven teams which had alerted FIFA that they intended to wear one love armbands in support of LGBTQ rights in Qatar would be punished by doing so immediately upon coming onto the field with a yellow card. This, in turn, led to the German team to take their group photo with their hands covering their mouths to match their forced silence during the pregame team photo. Now, FIFA has a long history of using these armbands, like those for the rights of the black community, but it simply illustrates how the laws within this very conservative nation affected this World Cup in ways that went far beyond the game of football. I'm not here to tell you if I think any of these things are wrong or right, morally speaking. 
Not because I don't want to, but because I want to give you the facts and let you, offsiders, decide for yourself. Now, to use an old phrase, for something completely different. When I say that, I'm being very serious. I want to stress in this case that what I'm about to tell you is not something that has anything to do with the Muslim face itself, but, at least from what research I've done, does appear to be somewhat of a cultural thing that can occur in various forms in some Middle Eastern nations. Because of the sensitive nature of what I'm about to talk about, I'm going to give you a skip option. What I'm going to talk about is the kafala system of, quote, work sponsorship, which has often been described by people much smarter than me as, quote, modern slavery. Before you navigate away, however, my plea to you is this. The only way for people like those who worked during the preparations for the World Cup and any of those who might still work under this system to experience any form of change or social justice is if people know it's occurring. I encourage you to look into this further on your own, and as I'm, again, just one lonely white podcaster who educated herself with only the internet and the writings of the fine folks at Human Rights Watch. With all that said, here's your timestamp. 2608. Let's talk about the Kafala system. What is it? Well, when I said at the top that the Kafala system is sometimes called, quote, work sponsorship, that's because if you remove some of the human rights components, that's kind of what it is. In a lot of cases, the employers of in these cases will act as a sponsor to vouch for a migrant worker entering the country. And the workers themselves may actually pay thousands of dollars in return in order to simply have the opportunity to hold this job. If that alone sounds strange, I'd ask that you hold your judgments. I myself have seen this applied right here in North America. Without the egregious human rights complaints that a Qatar has previously been accused of, but still, it's not entirely abnormal within North America. I will say what that does do to a worker, though, is immediately put them in debt to their employer even before they start work, something that makes those coming from lower-income countries particularly vulnerable to some of the harder stuff that we're about to discuss. The other main reasons given by Human Rights Watch as to why some of the workers in Qatar were vulnerable to deplorable work conditions are employers in some case have the ability to secure and renew migrant workers' residency and work permits, and they also have the ability to cancel these at any time. During the time between 2011 and 2015, before some of these laws were changed by Qatar, migrant workers were required to obtain their employer's consent to leave or change their job. Again, I'll note here that their laws have since been changed due to pressure from activists and migrant workers can now leave or change their jobs in Qatar so long as they make their intent known to their employers within a given time period. But what's important for this story is that during the building of most of the World Cup infrastructure, this was not the case. Workers could not leave or change their job without the consent of their employers. Employers could also rescind migrant workers' residency or work permits at any time. The crime of absconding is also something that was of issue in Qatar. Under this Qatari law, an employer can report a migrant worker as, quote, missing, meaning that the worker automatically becomes homeless, because workers living quarters in this case were often provided by their employers, they also automatically become undocumented within the country and as a result can be arrested, deported, or imprisoned. Lastly, migrant workers are required to have something called an exit permit in order to actually leave the country of Qatar, which again means they need their employer's consent in order to leave the, the country. This may leave these often poor, hard-working people who are simply seeking a better life, quite literally stuck in a foreign nation with a job they cannot leave.
Further, many of these people report being paid either very little or having their wages withheld or delayed for extended periods of time. The argument can of course be made that part of what builds the FIFA World Cup is an almost universal international passion for the beautiful game. But what's important in the case of the 2020 World Cup in Qatar is that we don't lose fact that what the game was really built on was the hard-working, heavily exploited migrant workers who would otherwise go unnamed. Okay, welcome back to those of you who have skipped. Let's go right back to our regular scheduled programming. This is also particularly interesting because the past provides us with quotes from the controversial 1978 World Cup in which Argentina was allowed to host the World Cup despite being host at the time to a very violent dictatorship government. Anyways, as a result of that particular World Cup, we were provided with quotes from people like forward Ricky Villa, who stated, quote, There is no doubt we were used politically, alongside with fellow teammate Le Pablo Luic, who said, quote, I don't know, honestly, if the match was fixed, but the Dilda, then dictatorial president and military leader of Argentina, did many bad things, much worse than bribing, so... But we did play a tremendous game against Peru. Quote, I'm pretty sure from a FIFA Exco member, although I can't honestly find it now, saying something about the fact that FIFA is easiest to carry out in dictatorship-like countries because it's easy to manipulate local laws to have things better suit the event. What this does is it tells us, at least in part, that FIFA cares very little, if at all, about the political, legal, and potential human rights violations which might occur in a host country, so long as they don't impair its ability to both carry out the event and make money. This in turn makes both Qatari law, culture, and thus its interpretation of Sharia law as much a character within this story as Mohammed bin Haman himself. So how does this affect FIFA? Let's check that out, shall we? First off, since I just came from talking to you about Argentina in the 1978 World Cup, it's important to note that a lot of the normal folks within Argentina who were considered left-wing activists, who opposed the right-wing government in Argentina at the time, were likely, in some cases, normal citizens of Argentina. So what did the normal citizens of Qatar think of having FIFA's World Cup in their backyard? Well, first of all, in the case of Qatar itself, the definition of a citizen is a little tighter than you might think. In order to become a naturalized citizen, according to the folks at the YouTube channel Geography Now, quote, a naturalized citizen must have 25 years of continuous residence with no more than two months absence per calendar year. They must have provable, sustainable income, and they must have a functional knowledge of the Arabic language. Or your father, notably not your mother, needs to be of Qatari descent. This means that as of July 2021, according to Al Jazeera, only about 10% of Qatar's 2.7 million people are actual Qatari citizens and are therefore eligible to vote in its elections of its executive council, which, as noted above, is really only an advisory council meant to advise the otherwise absolute ruling Amar in political matters such as those affecting the World Cup. Who else might have a say in this? Well, I'll tell you who definitely did not. The estimated hundreds of thousands of migrant workers who were tasked with building the stadiums and the infrastructure needed to host this global event and provide modern comforts for the rest of the world where they didn't previously exist. Now, 
for the sake of this podcast, and honestly, for the sake of my own personal conscience, I'm going to tell you that there's multiple sources which I would consider there are multiple sources which I would consider fairly reliable, places like The Guardian, Human Rights Watch, and Al Jazeera, which have reported that conditions that existed in these large for these largely undocumented workers, and I say undocumented because Qatar was notorious for not keeping reliable, impartial data on who actually lives and works in their country, not because these people have actually illegally immigrated in any way. That being said, I'm not really going to go into the depths of what's been called, quote, modern human slavery. Any more than I already have. Not because I don't think it's important, not because I don't want to, but rather because I honestly think such a serious topic deserves either its own episode and or possibly input from someone who knows far more about this than I do. I'm thinking that I'd like, I'd like to do that, possibly as a bonus episode, so folks can decide for themselves if they want to listen. But in the meantime, though, I think I hear a whistle. <coughs> Normally, I like to fill this section of the podcast with random interesting facts that I found while building this episode. Considering the fact that I've basically made the country of Qatar a character in this episode, I'd wager to bet that I've pretty much filled your brain with an abundance of random facts at this time around. So, just like always, when we get to this point of the show, if you want to be a total buzzkill and skip this section, you totally can. But before I let you do that though, I am going to say that this is quite possibly the most random of random facts I've ever done in the short history of this podcast, and involves one of my favorite cartoons of all times. If you're not enticed by that, here's your timestamp. 3853. For those of you who stuck around, I'm so glad you did, because I'm about to take you on the ride of the lives of the truly random thought train that formed the random facts section of this episode. I've given you more than enough purely educational content, so I figured I'd give you a much less serious set of random facts. So, let's go offside with intermission. The first of these things I want to talk about is one of the only, quote, sports that seem to be practiced inside Qatar prior to the World Cup. I want to make it clear that I'm using the term sports lightly in this case. Because even from someone who loves to engage in that everlasting kinesiology debate as to is it a sport or is it a game, the game unique to, to Qatar that I'm talking about is a little bit strange. And that sport is, of course, remote control camel racing. No idea what I'm talking about or think it's wild and crazy product of an AI experiment? Nope. It's legit, a real thing that happens largely among the richer Qataris in the middle or northern portions of Qatar in a place known as, I'm going to try this really hard, Al, Al Shania. During these remote control camel races, the racing Qataris follow behind their camels in white pickup trips. I assume in part because racing camels while physically on a camel in the direct sunlight of the desert would be far too difficult, even for the most seasoned of athletes. So folks race behind these camels in pickup trucks and control a mechanism which is harnessed to the camel himself. The mechanism is basically a remote controlled whip. Drivers can control the movement of their animals as they're trained to respond to variations in how the whip is applied to determine how they move. As an example, a camel might respond to two whips on its left leg by turning left. That, my friends, is how you remote control an actual animal. As it turns out, these races are very popular in the northern parts of Qatar. Racers who win can win thousands of dollars along with the admiration and respect of many in the region. Other prizes have also included coveted new white pickup trucks similar to the ones used in the races. Now that 
we're all experts in this wild sport, want to hear something about one of my favorite old school cartoons, which also happens to happen in a desert? Awesome. Me too. So, one of my favorite cartoons, which also takes place in a variation of a desert, is that pesky old Roadrunner and Mr. Wiley E. Coyote. See? Told you this intermission was going to be random. So, here's some random facts about that pesky coyote I got from this awesome article titled 15 Things You Didn't Know About Wiley E. Coyote by Lori Ulster at Screen Rants. As always, I'll leave that article in the show notes, but here's my top three. One, that rascally rundown coyote that we've all grown to love was inspired by a description of a coyote penned by none other than Mark Twain. The quote, which comes from Tom Sawyer, goes like this. A coyote is long, slim, slick, and sorry-looking skeleton. A living allegory of want. He is always hungry, he is always poor, out of luck, and friendless. Close quote. Cartoonist Chuck Jones says it was this description which inspired the cartoon version that we know now. Two, it was finally revealed via a movie in 2003 that we learned that part of the reason why Mr. Coyote can afford all of those acne contractions that he's always buying is because he's actually an employer of Acme Co. And so gets some kind of discount on all of these elaborate machines. Last, but certainly not least, Chuck Jones himself, the cartoonist, stated in his biography, The Life and Times of an Animated Cartoonist, that one of his nine rules for the Roadrunner cartoons was that Wiley E.'s main enemy in the cartoon was never actually the Roadrunner himself, but rather, gravity. Also, that the effects of gravity are best only experienced by Wiley E. Coyote once he actually notices that he's about to fall. Hence, him looking down before he eventually drops to yet another demise. All I have to say about this is, I feel your pain, Wiley. Now, before we take this intermission any further off a cliff, <laughs> I bet you'd like to know about the censorship sounds from Let's last episode. So, let's do that. So, in the last episode, I had for you, once again, two different censorship sounds. Their first is this one. I use this to represent the beginning of the main character, Jota Hallway's beginning into sports advertising with the purchase of his company, Traffic, which initially sold advertising on the sides of buses. The sound that you just heard is an air brake from a bus. The second sound is this. So that sound is actually me singing with what I thought was a tune that sounded loosely like something somebody might hear from a church choir with a church choir effect and an echo. That was paying an homage to the thing I talked about in the intermission of that episode, which was the Christ the Redeemer statue, which overlooks the major city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. All right, with that done, are you all ready to go to the second part of the pod, the one where you'll get to meet one of our last FIFA characters? Awesome. Me too. Let's go! So, like I told you guys a little bit in the intro of this pod, Mohammed bin Halman was the president of AFC, or Asian Football Confederation. Not to be confused with KFC, which is, again, a chicken restaurant and has nothing to do with football. The AFC being yet another block of FIFA members, nations just like CONCACAF and Common Bowl before them, which are a series of larger, largely Asian nations within FIFA who tend to put together on motions and hold regional tournaments and qualifiers among their member nations. Anyway, Bin Hamon was president of AFC from 2001 to 2011 and a member of FIFA's coveted EXCO, or Executive Committee, from 1996 to 2011. Are you confused about the structure of FIFA as a company? No worries, me too. One of the ways I comfort myself through this is knowing that one of the passages in his book Red Card, Ken Bensinger states that even the guys in the FBI 
Gang Crimes Division? That's some foreshadowing for you. Found it difficult to understand how that structure worked. So, if you find it difficult to understand how the structure of FIFA works, just know that the FBI didn't really get it either. That said, the most important thing that you need to know for this story is that Mohammed bin La that Mohammed bin Halman is a very important person in FIFA, and like most of the characters in this story, he's also a person in FIFA who is supposed to be bound by that ever-present FIFA ethics code. An ethics code which, among other things, says that bin Halman is not supposed to either accept or give bribes for things like his presidential vote, votes for host cities, heck, he's not even allowed to turn a profit on FIFA tickets given to him early by the organization. Spoiler alert though, our friend Mohammed is about to break some of those rules in a spectacular fashion. Like a lot of guys in this story, Mohammed was one ambitious dude. After serving on FIFA's Exco for as long as he had, Mohammed decides in early April of 2011 that he wants to challenge then president of FIFA, Joseph Sepp Blatter, for his seat as president. Not just the AFC president, but the president of the entire organization. By the time Bin Helman decides that he's wanted to challenge the now president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, Sepp Blatter has been inside the presidency, which he took over from Brazilian João Havelange in June of 1998. So Sepp had been president for, of FIFA for an astounding 13 years. All the bribes that were going to Zhao, care of his friends at Adidas and ILS, though there's a lack of evidence that that had continued to Bladder at this point, media correctly had long speculated that Bladder was now the recipient of these bribes. In those years, Bladder had long since established his power. This was evident when, in many of the elections hosted by FIFA for the presidency, which occurred on a four-year cycle after the World Cup of that quadrennial, Blatter ran largely uncontested for his position. So, for many, when Bin Halman decided that he wanted to challenge Blatter for his position, they told him that such a move was likely career suicide within FIFA given the power that Blatter had afforded himself, much of it powered by bribes. Nonetheless, Bin Halman was undeterred and really wanted to take a chance to talk to the nations of CONCACAF. Remember that block? Not CAFCAO like Abby on NCIS, the one that contains Canada, America, Mexico, and a bunch of Caribbean nations? Before they sat for the vote in June. This is where Jack Warner, then president of CONCACAF, and his... Romance from Hell, aka Chief Secretary Chief General Secretary Chuck Blazer come in. On April first of that year, Bin Halman sends an email and requests that the president of CONCACAF, Jack Warner, host a meeting of his member nations in Trinidad's capital, Port au Prince, so that Bin Halman can plead his case to the target set of block nations in FIFA. Despite Pleas from his then-secretary Chuck Blazer that Jack not facilitate this meeting for the sake of his own career, Jack was undeterred. Remember, Jack loves hosting events in Trinidad because it means that his travel company can also facilitate the travel of those attending. further line Jack's pockets, not to mention that having Jack help Bin Halman win FIFA presidency as a result of his favor probably wasn't going to hurt Jack. So after what seemed like must, what must have been a Herculean effort by Warner's staff at the CFU, that's the Caribbean Football Union, who Warner worked with prior to his presidency at CONCACAF, Listen, I have no idea how these dudes handle having, like, three high-powered jobs at once. I can barely pair my socks properly. 
Anyway, I assume that Jack needed help from his staff at the CFU because his general secretary in Chuck Glazer told him that this was a terrible idea. Nonetheless, the conference went ahead. Again, according to that awesome bo book Red Card by Ken Binsinger, which you should all really go read, I'll leave the links in the description, the folks at the CFU arranged the meeting that Ben Hamon had requested. But even one of the meeting's main organizers, General Secretary at the CFU, Angeline Kanhai, was shocked when she was passed a note by Jack Warner, which asked her to remind him about the gifts. Not knowing what he was talking about, Kanai was equally shocked when she heard from some of her fellow employees at the CFU that the gifts she had picked up for him after passing that note were in fact envelopes of $40,000 marked as gifts for each delegate from each nation at the conference. For those of you who want to know the math on that, I did it. As of the recording of this podcast, there are 41 members nations in CONCACAF, not CAFPOW. That means that in order to fork out that kind of money to each of its attendees, CONCACAF or the CFU would have had to have spent $1.6 million US. Once made aware of it, Jack's secretary, Chuck Warner, quickly summarized that these blatant bribes, with, which also contained small notes with the money, which indicated that people should take them and not discuss them with, other, with others, that it was far more likely that the man behind these bribes was in fact the multimillionaire behind the reason for this conference in the first place, none other, none other than Mohammed bin Helman himself. He was attempting to buy votes for the upcoming FIFA presidential election in June. Is that a violation of FIFA's ethics code? You can bet it is. Alright folks, well, perhaps unfortunately for you, and honestly also kind of for me, the stuff that's going down in this episode of the podcast is actually so long and so intense and so involved that we've already gotten to the 45 minutes minute mark on this podcast, and if I went any further, I promise you this podcast would be just about two hours, which I'm pretty sure most of you don't want to listen to. So, Mohammed bin Hamman has just broken FIFA's ethics code by trying to buy votes from a massive number of people and countries for an election that's coming up in June, and more than just the people at that conference have just found out that this is occurring. I'm gonna have to leave you there, folks. I'm really sorry. Next time, I'll try really hard to write shorter episodes, but this is just crazy. It's so crazy that it needs to be split up, unfortunately. Uh, but if you like this episode, you're definitely going to like the next episode because it's going to be equally as wild and we're going to be that much closer to the end. On that note, thanks for listening, guys. And remember, it doesn't matter if you're onside or offside, just so long as you're inside the lines. Have a good night, guys. What's up, gamers? This is Future Editing Mel here. I know I said I wasn't going to go in-depth into the accusations of acts of human slavery made regarding the immigrant workers who built the infrastructure for the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. That's still true. There's far more I could say about this. But I felt weird to leave this episode saying as little as I did. So I decided what I want to give you is this. A chance to give these workers the last word on this podcast. According to an article written by The Guardian's Paul McInnes, Hassan al-Thawadi, who is the Qatari in charge of what is essentially the World Cup Legacy Committee, admitted during a Pierce Morgan interview that the Qatari government admits to the deaths of approximately 400 to 500 people, but, and this is a quote, the numbers are still being discussed. A further article by the Guardian, which undertook a study of their own two years prior to this admission, with the help of advocacy group Fairsquare, which advocates for the workers in the Middle East, reported numbers 
by way of embassies of various East Asian nations estimates that the number is actually closer to 6,500 and is probably in fact larger. One of these workers was a man by the name of Mohammed Shel Hadid from Bangladesh. He died when the living quarters he was in, provided by his employers for workers working on World Cup projects, was flooded and came in contact with an exposed electrical wire. Many of these deaths are attributed to, quote, natural causes, according to the Qatari government, and the majority of these are respiratory or heart failure, which occurs in otherwise healthy men. I'm not really sure how much I believe that, but regardless of whether or not that's true, these workers surely deserved far better for what they did. If this podcast does nothing else, I hope it shines a light on the stories of the thousands of workers like Mohammed Shahadid. The sports washing of human atrocities continues into this modern era, and it's important that we keep our eyes open and call it out when we see it. So I'm dedicating this particular podcast to those thousands of workers, including Mohammed Shahadid. This one's for you guys. I'm so sorry you were treated so unfairly. The Two Line Offside podcast is a sound shifter production, meaning that it's written, edited, produced, and researched by yours truly. Shout out to Alex Action of Pixabay.com for the intro and outro of this podcast. And as always, if you think I went onside, or if you think I went offside, you can email me at offside.podcast.com. 12 at gmail.com. See you next time, guys.